Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America, by Christian Williams. Chapter 1, Police Brutality in Theory and Practice. In April 2001, when police officer Stephen Roach killed Timothy Thomas, Cincinnati served as the stage for a classic American drama. Thomas, an unarmed teenager wanted for several misdemeanor warrants, was the 15th black man the Cincinnati police had killed in six years. A few days later, protesters led by the victim's mother occupied City Hall for three hours. When they were forced out, the crowd marched to the police station, growing as it went. At the police station, the demonstration es escalated. Members of the crowd hit the cops with rocks and bottles, shattered the station's glass entryway, and removed the American flag outside. When the police responded with tear gas and rubber bullets, the disorder spread. For three nights, hundreds of people, mostly young black men, participated in looting and vandalism. The rioting mostly consisted of window breaking and sporadic attacks on white people, though dumpster fires became so common that the fire department stopped responding to them. The fight was by no means one-sided. The police made 760 arrests and injured an unknown number of people. In what was perhaps the most disgraceful episode of the entire affair, police fired seven less lethal beanbags at a crowd gathered for Thomas's funeral service. Four people were hit, including two children. One victim, Christine Jones, was hospitalized with a fractured rib, bruised lung, and injured spleen. She described the incident, quote, It was like a drive-by shooting. All of a sudden, out of the blue, several police cars screeched to a halt at the intersection, jumped out of the cars, and just immediately started shooting people with the shotguns. No warning, no nothing, end quote. It's no secret that the police come into conflict with members of the public. The police are tasked with controlling a population that does not always respect their authority and may resist efforts to enforce the law. Hence, police are armed, trained, and authorized to use force in the course of executing their duty. At times, they use the ultimate in force, killing those they are charged with controlling. Under such an arrangement, it's not surprising that officers sometimes move beyond the bounds of their authority. Nor is it surprising that the affected communities respond with anger, sometimes rage. The battles that ensue do not only concern particular injustices, but also represent deep disputes about the rights of the public and the limits of state power. On the one side, the police and the government try desperately to maintain control to preserve their authority, and on the other, oppressed people struggle to assert their humanity. Such riots represent, among other things, the attempt of the community to define for itself what will count as police brutality and where the limit of authority falls. It's in these conflicts, not in the courts, that our rights are established. The Rodney King Beating. Basic stuff, really. On March 3, 1991, a black motorist named Rodney King led the California Highway Patrol and the Los Angeles Police Department on a 10-minute chase. When he stopped and exited the car, police ordered him to lie down. He got on all fours instead, and Sergeant Stacy Kuhn shot him twice with an electric taser. The other passengers in King's car were cuffed and laid prone on the street. An officer kept his gun aimed at them, and when they heard screams, he ordered them not to look. One did try to look, and was clubbed on the head. Others were watching, however, and a few days later, the entire world saw what had happened to Rodney King. A video recorded by a bystander shows three cops taking turns beating King, with several other officers looking on, and Sergeant Stacy Coon shouting orders. The video shows police clubbing King 56 times and kicking him in the body and head. When the video was played on local news, KCET enhanced the sound, 
Police can be heard ordering King to put his hands behind his back and calling him, quote, nigger. The chase began at 12.40 a.m. and ended at 12.50 a.m. At 12.56, Sergeant Kuhn reported via his car's computer, You just had a big-time use of force. Tased and beat the suspect of CHP pursuit big time. At 12.57, the station responded, Oh well, I'm sure the lizard didn't deserve it. Ha ha. At 1.07, the watch commander summarized the incident, again via mobile data terminal, quote, CHP chasing, failing to yield, past car, uh, 23, they became primary, then tased, then beat, basic stuff really, unquote. Kuhn himself endorsed this assessment of the incident. In his 1992 book on the subject, he described the altercation with Rodney King as unexceptional. Quote, just another night on the LAPD. That's what it had been. Unquote. King was jailed for four days, but released without charges. He was treated at County USC Hospital, where he received 20 stitches and treatment for a broken cheekbone and broken ankle. Nurses there reported hearing officers brag and joke about the beating. King later listed additional injuries, including broken bones and teeth, injured kidneys, multiple skull fractures, and permanent brain damage. Twenty-three officers had responded to the chase, including two in a helicopter. Of these, ten Los Angeles Police Department officers were present on the ground during the beating, including four field training officers, who supervised rookies. Four cops, Stacy Kuhn, Lawrence Powell, Timothy Wind, and Theodore Briseno, were indicted for their role in the beating. Wind was a new employee, still in his probationary period, and was fired. The two California Highway Patrol officers were disciplined for not reporting the use of force, and their supervisor was suspended for ten days. But none of the other officers present were disciplined in any way, though they had done nothing to prevent the beating or to report it afterward. The four indicted cops were acquitted. Social scientists have argued that the verdict was, quote, predictable, given the location of the trial. As Oliver Johnson and Farrell write, quote, Simi Valley, the site of the trial, and Ventura County more generally, is a predominantly white community known for its strong stance on law and order, as evidenced by the fact that a significant number of LAPD officers lived there. Thus, the four white police officers were truly judged by a jury of their peers. Viewed in this context, the verdict should not have been unanticipated. Unquote. Kuhn, Powell, Wind, and Briseno were acquitted. They were then almost immediately charged with federal civil rights violations, but that was clearly too little too late. L.A. was in flames. A social conflagration. The people of Los Angeles offered a ready response to the acquittal. Between April 30 and May 5, 1992, 600 fires were set, 4,000 businesses were destroyed, and property damage neared a billion dollars. 52 people died and 2,383 people were injured seriously enough to seek medical attention. Smaller disturbances also erupted around the country, in San Francisco, Atlanta, Las Vegas, New York, Seattle, Tampa, and Washington, D.C. Despite the media's portrayal of the riot as an expression of black rage, arrest statistics show it to have been a multiracial affair. 3,492 Latinos, 2,832 black people, and 640 white people were arrested, as were 2,492 other people of unidentified races. Likewise, despite the media focus on violence, especially attacks on white people and Korean merchants, the data tell a different story. Only 10% of arrests were for violent crime. The most common charge was curfew violation, 42%. 
closely followed by property crimes, 35%. Likewise, the actual death toll, quote, definitely attributable to the rioters was under 20. The police killed at least half that many, and probably many more. Moreover, although some whites and Korean Americans were killed, the vast majority of fatalities were African Americans and Hispanic Americans who died as bystanders or as rioters opposing civil authorities, unquote. Depending on whom you ask, you will hear that the riots constituted, quote, a black protest, a, quote, bread riot, the, quote, breakdown of civilized society, or, quote, inter-ethnic conflict. None of these accounts is sufficient on its own, but one thing is certain. The riots speak to conditions beyond any single incident. In the five years preceding the Rodney King beating, 2,500 claims relating to the use of force were filed against the LAPD. To describe just one, in April 1988, Louis Milton Morales, a 24-year-old Latino man, lost the vision in one eye because of a police beating. That incident also began with a traffic violation, followed by a brief chase. Morales crashed his car into a police cruiser and tried to flee on foot. The police caught him, clubbed him, and kicked him when he fell. They resumed the beating at the Rampart Station. The attack involved a total of 28 officers. One commander described his subordinates as behaving like a, quote, lynch mob. The, the city paid $177,500 in a settlement with Morales. None of the officers was disciplined. Such incidents, as well as the depressed economic conditions of the inner city, supplied the fuel for a major conflagration. The king beating, the video, and the verdict offered just the spark to set it off. A lesson to learn and learn again. Rodney King's beating was unusual only because it was videotaped. The community that revolted following the acquittal seemed to grasp this fact, even if the learned commentators and pious pundits condemning them did not. By the same token, the revolt itself also fit an established pattern. In 1968, the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, commonly called the Kerner Commission, examined 24 riots and reached some remarkable conclusions. Quote, our examination of the background of the surveyed disorders revealed a typical pattern of deeply held grievances which were widely shared by many members of the Negro community. The specific content of the expressed grievances varied somewhat from city to city, but in general, grievances among Negroes in all cities related to prejudice, discrimination, severely disadvantaged living conditions, and a general sense of frustration about their inability to change those conditions. Specific events or incidents exemplified and reinforced the shared sense of grievance. With each such incident, frustration and tension grew until at some point a final incident, often similar to the incidents preceding it, occurred and was followed almost immediately by violence. As we see it, the prior incidents and the reservoir of underlying grievances contributed to a cumulative process of mounting tension that spilled over into violence when the final incident occurred. In this sense, the entire chain, the grievances, the series of prior tension-heightening incidents, and the final incident, was precipitant of disorder." Unquote. The Kerner Report goes on to note, quote, "...almost invariably the incident that ignites disorder arises from police action. Harlem, Watts, Newark, and Detroit, all the major outbursts of recent years, were precipitated by routine arrests of Negroes for minor offenses by white officers." Unquote. A few years earlier, in his essay, Fifth Avenue Uptown, A Letter from Harlem, James Baldwin had offered very similar analysis. Quote, 
The only way to police a ghetto is to be oppressive. None of the police commissioner's men, even with the best will in the world, have any way of understanding the lives led by the people they swagger about in twos and threes controlling. Their very presence is an insult, and it would be, even if they spent their entire day feeding gumdrops to children. They represent the force of the white world, and that world's real intentions are, simply, from that world's criminal profit and ease, to keep the black man corralled up here in his place. One day, to everyone's astonishment, someone drops a match in the powder keg and everything blows up. Before the dust has settled or the blood congeals, editorials, speeches, and civil rights commissions are loud in the land, demanding to know what happened. What happened is that Negroes want to be treated like men. Unquote. Baldwin wrote his essay in 1960. Between its publication and that of the Kerner Report, the U.S. witnessed civil disturbances of increasing frequency and intensity. Notable among these was the Watts Riot of 1965. The Watts Rebellion has been said to divide the 60s into its two parts, the classic period of the civil rights movement before, and the more militant black power movement after. Like the riots of 1992, the Watts disturbance began with a traffic stop. Marquette Fry was pulled over by the California Highway Patrol near Watts, a black neighborhood in Los Angeles. A crowd gathered, and the police called for backup. As the number of police and bystanders grew, the tension increased accordingly. The police assaulted a couple of bystanders and arrested Fry's family. As the cops left, the crowd stoned their cars. They began attacking other vehicles in the area, turning them over and setting them on fire. The next evening, the disorder arose anew, with looting and arson in the nearby com commercial areas. The riot lasted six days and caused an estimated $35 million in damage. Almost a thousand buildings were damaged or destroyed. One thousand people were treated for injuries and 34 were killed. Fourteen years after Watts, and thirteen years before the Rodney King verdict, a similar drama played out on the other side of the country, in Miami. On December 17, 1979, the police chased caught, beat, and killed a black insurance salesman named Arthur McDuffie. McDuffie, who was riding his cousin's motorcycle, allegedly popped a wheelie and made an obscene gesture at police surgeon Ira Diggs before leading police on an eight-minute high-speed chase. Twelve other cars joined in the pursuit, and when they caught McDuffie, between six and eight officers beat him with heavy flashlights as he lay handcuffed, face down on the pavement. Four days later, he died. Three officers were charged with second-degree murder, and three others agreed to testify in exchange for immunity. Judge Lenore Nesbitt called the case, quote, a time bomb, and moved it to nearby Tampa, where an all-white jury had recently acquitted another officer accused of beating a black motorist. The defense then used its peremptory challenges to remove all black candidates from the jury. The outcome was predictable. The cops were acquitted. Crowds then looted stores, burned buildings, and attacked white passersby crowds also laid siege to the police station, breaking its windows and setting fire to the lobby. When calm returned, 17 people were dead, 1,100 had been arrested, and $80 million in property had been damaged. 417 people were treated in area hospitals, the majority of them white. Here was a key difference. In Miami, the typical looting and burning of white-owned property were matched with attacks against white people. In the disorders of the 1960s, attacks against persons had been relatively rare. In three of the 60s' largest riots, those of Watts, Newark, and Detroit, the crowd intentionally killed only two or three white people. Bruce Porter and Marvin Dunn comment, quote, 
What was shocking about Miami was the intensity of the rage directed against white people. Men, women, and children dragged from their cars and beaten to death, stoned to death, stabbed with screwdrivers, run over with automobiles, hundreds more attacked in the street and seriously injured. In Miami, attacking and killing white people was the main object of the riot. Unquote. Among those injured in the riots was an elderly white man named Martin Weinstock. Weinstock was hit in the head with a piece of concrete and suffered a fractured skull. He was hospitalized for six days. Still, he told an interviewer, quote, They should only know that I agree with their anger. If the people who threw the concrete were brought before me in handcuffs, I would insist that the handcuffs be removed, and I'd try to talk to them. I would say that I understand and that I'm on their side. I have no anger at all, but they'll never solve their problems by sending people like me to the hospital, unquote. Weinstock is right. Violence directed against random representatives of some dominant group is hardly strategic, much less morally justifiable. But, if such attacks are, as Porter and Dunn insist, shocking, it can only be because black anger has so rarely taken this form. White violence against black people has never been limited to the destruction of their property. Even in Miami, black people got the worst of the violence. Of the 17 dead, nine were black people killed by police, the National Guard, or white vigilantes. Are these deaths somehow less shocking than those of white people? Yet, how loudly white people denounce prejudice when it is directed against them, and how quietly they accept it as it continually bears down on people of color. They indignantly point out the contradiction when those who object to prejudice employ it, and all the while adroitly ignore their own complicity in the institutions of white supremacy. James Baldwin, again in his Letter from Harlem, imagines the predicament of a white policeman patrolling the ghetto. Quote, he too believes in good intentions and is astounded and offended when they are not taken for the deed. He has never himself done anything for which to be hated. But which of us has? Unquote. The basics. We're encouraged to think of acts of police violence more or less in isolation, to consider them as unique, unrelated occurrences. We ask ourselves always, what went wrong? And for answers, we look to the seconds, minutes, or hours before the incident. Perhaps this leads us to fault the individual officer, or perhaps it leads us to excuse him. Such thinking, derived as it is from legal reasoning, does not take us far beyond the case in question. And thus, such inquiries are rarely very illuminating. Of the instances of police violence I discussed above, the shooting of Timothy Thomas, the beatings of Rodney King and Louis Milton Morales, the arrest of Marquette Fry, the killing of Arthur Duffy, any of these may be explained in terms of the actions and attitudes of the particular officers at the scene, the events preceding the violence, including the actions of the victims, and the circumstances in which the officers found themselves. Indeed, juries and police administrators have frequently found it possible to excuse police violence with such explanations. The unrest that followed these incidents, however, cannot be explained in such narrow terms. To understand the rioting, one must consider a whole range of related issues, including the conditions of life in the black community, the role of the police in relation to that community, and the history and pattern of similar abuses. If we're to understand the phenomenon of police brutality, we must get beyond the particular cases. We can better understand the actions of individual police officers if we understand the institution of which they're a part. That institution, in turn, can best be examined if we have an understanding of its origins, its social function, and its relation to larger systems like capitalism and white supremacy. Each of these topics will be addressed in later chapters, while here, as a first course, I will focus on what is known about police violence per se. 
Let's begin with the basics. Violence is an inherent part of policing. The police represent the most direct means by which the state imposes its will on the citizenry. When persuasion, indoctrination, moral pressure, and incentive measures all fail, there are the police. In the field of social control, police are specialists in violence. They are armed, trained, and authorized to use force. With varying degrees of subtlety, this colors their every action. Like the possibility of arrest, the threat of violence is implicit in every police encounter. Violence, as well as the law, is what they represent. Defining brutality. The study of police brutality faces any number of methodological barriers, not the least of which is the problem of defining it. There's no standard definition, nor is there one way of measuring force and excessive force. As a consequence, different studies produce very different results, and these results are difficult to compare. Kenneth Adams, writing for the National Institute of Justice, notes, quote, Because there is no standard methodology for measuring use of force, estimates can vary considerably on strictly computational grounds. Different definitions of force and different definitions of police-public interactions will yield different rates. In particular, broad definitions of use of force, such as those that include grabbing or handcuffing a suspect, will produce higher rates than more conservative definitions. Broad definitions of police-public interactions, such as calls for assistance, which capture variegated requests for assistance, lead to low rates of use of force. Conversely, narrow definitions of police-public interactions, such as arrests, which concentrate squarely on suspects, lead to higher rates of use of force. Unquote. Adams himself outlines multiple definitions for use of force violations, focusing on different aspects of the misconduct. Quote, for example, deadly force refers to situations in which force is likely to have lethal consequences for the victim. The victim need not necessarily die. The term excessive force is used to describe situations in which more force is used than allowable when judged in terms of administrative or professional guidelines or legal standards. Illegal use of force refers to situations in which use of force by police violated a law or statute. Improper, abusive, illegitimate, and unnecessary use of force are terms that describe situations in which an officer's authority to use force has been mishandled in some general way, the suggestion being that administrative procedures, societal expectations, ordinary concepts of lawfulness, and the principle of last resort have been violated, respectively." Unquote. Adding to the difficulty of comparing one set of figures with another, each of these concepts refers to standards that vary according to the agency, jurisdiction, and community involved. Even within a single agency, agreement on the interpretation of the relevant standards may not be perfect. Bobby Lee Cheatham, a black cop in Miami, noted the different standards among the police. Quote, to white officers, police brutality is going up and just hitting on someone with no reason. To me, it's when a policeman gets in a situation where he's too aggressive or uses force when it isn't needed. Most of the time, the policeman creates the situation himself." Unquote. Even where the facts of the case are agreed upon, which is rare, there may yet be intense disagreement about the relevant standards of conduct and their application to the particular circumstances. For example, in October 1997, sheriff's deputies in Humboldt County, California, swabbed pepper spray fluid directly into the eyes of anti-logging, nonviolent demonstrators locked together in an act of civil disobedience. Amnesty International called the tactic, quote, deliberately cruel and tantamount to torture, unquote. A federal judge refused to issue an injunction against the practice, however, claiming that it only caused, quote, transient pain. 
This case highlights the disparate judgments possible even given the same facts. A great many people feel about police brutality as Justice Potter Stewart felt about pornography. They can't define it, but they know it when they see it. Unfortunately, they might not know it when they see it. Many police tactics, the use of pressure points, the fastening of handcuffs too tightly, and the direct application of pepper spray, for example, really don't look anything like they feel. More to the point, in most cases, nobody sees the brutality at all, except for the cops and their victims. The rest of us have to rely on secondary information, usually taking one side or the other at their word. Things get even stickier when general patterns of violence are scrutinized, even where no particular encounter rises to the level of official misconduct. Quote, Use of excessive force means that police applied too much force in a given incident, while excessive use of force means that police apply force legally in too many incidents. Unquote. While the former is more likely to grab headlines, it's the latter that makes the largest contribution to the community's reservoir of grievances against the police. But since the force in question is within the bounds of policy, the excessive use of force is more difficult to address from the perspective of discipline and administration. All of this controversy and confusion points to a very simple fact. Police brutality is a normative construction. It involves an evaluation, a judgment, and not simply a collection of facts. David Bailey and Harold Mendelssohn explain, quote, It should also be noted that police brutality is not just a descriptive category. Rather, it is a judgment made about the propriety of police behavior. Since the use of the phrase implies a judgment, people may disagree profoundly about whether a particular incident, even though it involves the obvious use of force, is a case of brutality. Any discussion of police brutality is therefore encumbered by confusion about whether it applies to more than physical assaults, and also by disagreement over what circumstances absolve the police from blame." Unquote. In short, the technical distinctions between, say, excessive force and illegal force, while bringing some measure of precision to the discussion, lead us no nearer to a resolution of these disputes. That's because at root, the disagreement is not about whether a rule was broken or a law violated. The question, the real question, is one of legitimacy. The larger conflict is a conflict of values. Let's consider this problem anew. The trouble, or part of it, comes in discerning the legitimate and illegitimate uses of violence. Abuses of authority may look very much like their less corrupt counterparts. Or, stated from a different perspective, the application of legitimate force often feels quite a lot like abuse. But there is no paradox here, not really. The state claiming a monopoly on the legitimate use of force needs to distinguish its own violence from other allegedly less legitimate uses of force. In non-totalitarian societies, authority exists within carefully prescribed, if vague, one might suggest intentionally vague, boundaries. Action within these limits is, quote, legitimate. Similar action outside of such limits is, quote, abuse. It's as simple as that. If the difference seems subtle, that's because it is subtle. In the case of police violence, the difference between legitimate and excessive force is one of degree rather than one of kind. Even the term, quote, excessive force implies this. Hence, where you or I see brutality, the cop sees only a day's work. The authorities, the other authorities, more often than not side with the policeman, even where he has violated some law or policy. This is in a sense only fair, since the police officer, unless he engages in mutiny, always sides with them. The main difference, then, between policing and police abuse is a rule or law that usually goes unenforced. The difference is the words. 
The preceding observations provide a framework for understanding police brutality, but tell us almost nothing about its prevalence, its forms, its perpetrators, or its victims. Solid facts and hard numbers are very hard to come by. This dearth of information may say something about how seriously the authorities take the problem. Until very recently, nobody even bothered to keep track of how often police use force, at least not as part of any systematic national effort. In 1994, Congress decided to require the Justice Department to collect and publish annual statistics on the police use of force. But this effort has been fraught with difficulty. Unlike the Justice Department's other major data collection projects, the Uniform Crime Reports provide a useful contrast, the examination of police use of force has never received adequate funding, and the reports appear at irregular intervals. Furthermore, the data on which the studies are based are surely incomplete. Many of the reports rely on local police agencies to supply their numbers, and reporting is voluntary. Worse, the information, once collected and analyzed, is often put to propagandistic uses. Its presentation is sometimes heavily skewed to support a law enforcement perspective. But despite their many flaws, the Justice Department reports remain one of the most comprehensive sources of information about the police use of force. These reports represent various approaches to the issue. They measure the use of force as it occurs in different circumstances, such as arrests and traffic stops. They examine both the level of force used and the frequency with which it is employed, and some studies collect data from victims as well as police. Unfortunately, under-reporting handicaps every means of compiling the data. One report states frankly, quote, The incidence of wrongful use of force by police is unknown. Current indicators of excessive force are all critically flawed, unquote. The most commonly cited indicators are civilian complaints and lawsuits, but few victims of police abuse feel comfortable complaining to the same department under which they suffered the abuse, and lawyers usually only want cases that will win. In other words, cases where the evidence is clear and the harm substantial. Many people fail to make a complaint of any kind, either because they would like to put the unpleasant experience behind them, because they fear retaliation, because they suspect that nothing can be done, or because they feel they will not be believed. Hence, measures that depend on victim reporting are likely to represent only a small fraction of the overall incidence of brutality. According to a 1999 Justice Department survey, quote, the vast majority, 91.9%, of the persons involved in use of force incidents said that police acted improperly, although the majority of persons with force used against them felt police acted improperly. Less than 20% of these people said they took formal action, such as filing a complaint or lawsuit, unquote. Naturally, the victim is not always the best judge as to whether force was excessive, but in some cases, he may be the only source willing to admit that force was used at all. This provides another reason to separate questions concerning legitimacy of violence from those concerning its prevalence. Quote, the difficulties in measuring excessive and illegal force with complaint and lawsuit records have led academics and practitioners to redirect their attention to all use of force incidents. The focus then becomes one of minimizing all instances of police use of force, without undue concern as to whether force was excessive. From this perspective, other records, such as use of force reports, arrest records, injury reports, and medical records, become relevant to measuring the incidence of the problem. Unquote. Of course, these indicators also have their shortcomings. Arrest records, medical records, and the like will surely reveal uses of violence that have not resulted in lawsuits or formal complaints, but they will still underestimate the overall incidence of force, 
since not every case will be accurately recorded. For example, attempts to assess the prevalence of force based on arrest reports leave out those cases where force was used but no arrest was made. Like the victims, though for very different reasons, the perpetrators of police violence are also likely to underreport its occurrence. And they are likely to understate the level of force used and the seriousness of resultant injuries when they do report it. Individual medical records, meanwhile, are not generally available for examination, except when presented as evidence in a complaint hearing or a civil trial. And even if emergency rooms were to maintain statistics on police-related injuries, many victims of violence, especially the uninsured, do not seek treatment except for the most serious of injuries. Other indicators, such as media reports and direct observation, are similarly flawed. The media, of course, can only report on events if they know about them. Furthermore, they are unlikely to report on routine uses of force because, like the fabled dog bites man story, it's so commonplace. Direct observation is limited by the obvious fact that no one can observe everything everywhere, all the time. And observation can lead a subject, either the officer or the suspect, to change his behavior while he's being observed. In humanitarian terms, such deterrence is all for the good, but it doesn't do much for the systematic study of police activity or the measurement of police violence. The sad fact is that nobody knows very much about the police use of force, much less about the use of excessive force. Its prevalence, frequency, and distribution remain, for the most part, unmeasured, and there's only limited information available concerning its perpetrators, victims, forms, and causes. Nevertheless, some information is available through the sources mentioned above, and, imperfect though they are, the statistics they produce may point to a reliable baseline, an estimated minimum to which we can refer with a fair amount of certainty. With that aim in mind, and with not a little trepidation, we should turn our attention to the data that are available and consider what they indicate.